Fiang Chigod Elon Taekwondo Clubhouse right now, it follows one person, which is me, because we had to do a bunch of things to go make it work. So 10 p.m. comes by, and I had not heard from Elon all day after the original text. And then I'll never forget, if we go on air, it takes like these two minutes where I'm stalling and hamming and I'm petrified, right? Because we have like 8,000 people or whatever the maximum room in the world. Every room is an overflow room. I'm seeing my name turn on Twitter. There were pirated streams on YouTube live, which are about like a few hundred thousand people. And they all can hear you. It's kind of a weird feeling, right? Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Sue. Hi, this is Will Chang, and as always, I have my co-hosts Lee Chang and Andrew Su with me. Hey guys, really excited to be on today. Hey, happy to be here. Sriram Krishnan is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, investing in crypto and Web3. Andreessen Horowitz, also known as A16Z, is one of the most well-known venture funds in the space, recently raising $4.5 billion for their fourth crypto fund. Prior to A16Z, Sriram led product teams at consumer social media platforms, Snap, Facebook, and Twitter. Together with his wife and co-host Artie, he broke the internet during COVID, hosting the Good Time Show on Clubhouse, where he brought on guests like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and Virgil Abloh. Most recently, the Good Time Show, now live on YouTube, hosted ACCZ founder Mark Andreessen and Coinbase founder and CEO Brian Armstrong. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think there's a cliche saying, which is long-time listener, first-time caller <laughs> or signer into podcast software. But no, I thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. I'm a big fan of the conversations you have. And I'm nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to sort of bring my A game here. So I'm nervous. But no, thank you so much. You folks do a fantastic job. I'm really happy to be here. I really appreciate you coming on. So I wanted to bring us back to a moment that I will never forget. It was early 2021. The entire world was shut down due to COVID. All of us were quarantined, lacking social connection. And the voice-based social media app Clubhouse was our social oasis. It became a viral phenomenon and you and your wife were at the center of it. There was this moment in time that I will always remember. Starting from the Wall Street Bets subreddit, retail investors had short squeeze GameStop stock. It sent us soaring while institutional investors were losing billions. Robinhood suddenly froze buying GameStop stock on their platform and everyone was furious. Right after this happened, you're hosting Elon Musk on The Good Time Show. Vlad, the CEO of Robinhood, was in the audience, and Elon pulled him up as a speaker and started grilling Vlad on why it happened. Tell us about that moment in time. That moment was insane. So the backstory is Clubhouse had just launched, I think, a few months before. And this, just to set the scene, is about the end of December 2020. It's the holidays and kind of very quiet. It's peak COVID. There's nothing else happening. And my wife, Arti and I were kind of sitting at home and we weren't doing much. We were bored. And we were watching Clubhouse climb the charts. And if you folks remember, you know, there were all these amazing conversations being hosted at the time. And we've always been fans of late night talk shows. I grew up on Leno and Letterman recently, like Fallon and Kimmel. And we said, look, we have been working in technology for a long time. We always have these fascinating conversations in person or on WhatsApp with people we know just because we have free time and we're kind of bored, why don't we just start hosting some of these conversations on Clubhouse? And we had just seen the Softy Brothers movie at Good Time. And we said, we just call it the Good Time Show, right? That's actually the, the origin story. So we started, I think, in late December of 2020. For the first couple of weeks, it was both of us, Mark Andreessen, Steven Sinovsky. We would get some friends over. We had like Gary Tan and Avichal Garg. And we would just honestly just shoot the shit, right? We would talk about what is happening that day. And it was actually a pretty eventful couple of weeks, but you know, we would just shoot the shit. And so by the way, at this time, I had not joined A16Z, which is actually kind of relevant. And well, there's a part of that. So a couple of weeks go by. And this is going to sound very name droppy, but like, the truth is I've known Elon for like a few years. We've sort of built up a relationship because of Twitter and a few other things that happen. And I kind of always wanted him on the show. So I would text him and I would say, hey, do you want to come on the show? And he would say, look, I'm busy. You know, I can't make it. And we really had no plans. And then one afternoon, I think this was about January 20th or so last year, he texted me and he said, look, you want me to come on Clubhouse? We can do it tonight. And I was like, okay, right. And then before actually telling me, he actually tweeted, this was a Sunday afternoon, I remember very well. He tweeted saying, I'm going to be on Clubhouse this afternoon. And let me tell you, I used to work at Twitter. 
But when Elon tweets about you and tags you, your phone just melts. So I think it was about noon in the afternoon and our show goes on live at about 10 p.m. And my phone was melting. I could not open Twitter because every time I open Twitter, you get like a 500 notification, then it would crash. So I had no idea what everyone is saying. And I had all these friends ping me and say, hey, I heard Elon's coming on the show. And we were the trending topic on Twitter. And we had every clubhouse room become, what is Elon going to say when he comes on the show tonight? So he texts me this. And to set the stage, lots of things were also happening at the time. I had signed an offer with A16Z, but I had not started yet, right? So these things were kind of happening in parallel. Like I had no idea when Elon was going to show up. I had no idea when I was going to start. But the day Elon texted me and said he was going to come on the show was a Sunday. Monday was going to be an official first day at A16Z, which by the way, nobody really knew about because we hadn't really started yet. So that was going to happen. Number two is Clubhouse was obviously a very well-known A16Z investment. Uh, Robinhood, which was also in the news, and I um, it was also an ACC investment, but I didn't know Robinhood and Rod were going to be involved at this point in time. But I was just kind of, my wife and I was just, I remember spending the entire afternoon just being ridiculously nervous, right? Because you're like, what are we going to do? Because every trending topic on Twitter was us. And it is a surreal feeling to see your name up there. And you're like, oh shit, I better not fuck this up. It's kind of a weird feeling. And the late afternoon goes by and my wife and I kind of think about everything from we have our daughters. We're like, how do you get to get into bed early? So we actually do the show uninterrupted. We think about all of those things. And Elon's not responding to any of my texts. And now, you know, I'm getting nervous, right? Because it's like the eye of the internet is on you. And all the folks at A6 and Z are like, hey, you know, you're going to bring on Elon and we want to kind of record it and we want to figure out everything goes okay. And I don't want to tell them, I actually can't reach him right now, right? And I'm not sure he's going to show up. And by the way, this is before I, the night before I start on my first day. So I'm like, maybe not the best first impression to make if you have a no-show the night before. So I was mildly nervous to put it into the clubhouse sports were doing a lot of work to make sure they could scale because every room had become Elon. There was fear about whether Elon could actually join his own room. So they had to do some special things to his account. Uh, if you actually go to Elon's account on Clubhouse right now, it follows one person, which is me, because we had to do a <laughs> bunch of things to go make it work. So 10 p.m. comes by. And I had not heard from Elon all day after the original text. And then I'll never forget, if we go on air, it takes like these two minutes where I'm like stalling and hamming and I'm petrified, right? Because we have like 8,000 people or whatever the maximum room in the Every room is an overflow room. I'm seeing my name turn on Twitter. There were pirated streams on YouTube live, which are about like a few hundred thousand people. And they all can hear you. It's kind of a weird feeling, right? When they say, yeah. And then Elon comes in and says hi. And I remember being so relieved at that moment because, okay, at least he's showed up, right? Whatever happens to now, at least I delivered Elon and it's fine. So anyway, so we get started. I remember Arthi asked the first question, which is when do we get to Mars? And the whole focus of our show was always about being optimistic about founders and technology. That's kind of a whole jam. My wife and I, we always say we've been very fortunate. We met each other online 20 years ago. If it weren't for technology, we would not be here talking to people like you or being heard by you know the listeners of this show. We are very, very fortunate uh, for what technology has given us. And some of the idea behind the show was hey, to kind of give back and have optimistic conversations. So we had some questions prepared. And about a couple of minutes in, by the way, at this point, I had no idea that Lard or Robin would be involved. And what I did not know at this time was that Elon had just met Lard for the very first time through some introduction, like maybe 10, 15 minutes before the show has happened, right? And Elon, whose life motto is like, let's just do the most interesting thing. I told him, hey, I'm doing this thing with this couple. Why don't you just come on? This was be GameStop, Wall Street, Bets Week. And why don't you just come on the show? It might be fun. And Lard was like, great. I had no idea that any of this had happened. And so Elon tells me on air, if you listen to the recording, he says on air, hey, can we bring up Lard of Robinhood? I just spoke to him. And I'm thinking, okay, Robinhood is an ACC investment. They have this big press week. I'm not prepared. I kind of stall and dodge. I say something like, yeah, we'll work on it. Basically, I'm saying, I don't want to deal with this right now. I just want to do the show, right? So we do the show and it is amazing. The One of the interesting things about Elon in a conversation format is if you ask him a question, he pauses about like a couple of beats longer than any other regular person. You much watch any of his interviews, you always see that. And as an interviewer, it would throw me off in the beginning because you go, wait, did I offend him? Do I need to clarify myself? Because he kind of seems to react just three, four seconds later. But what I've learned about him is he's actually just deeply thinking and processing so if you wait out those three, four seconds, he's going to come back with a ridiculously well-thought-out, well-structured answer. You can ask him pretty much anything, and he'll come back with a very well-structured answer. So we had some amazing conversations. I think we asked him about batteries, we asked him about Mars, we asked him about his favorite movies, all over the place. It was amazing. I remember one of my favorite moments was, at one time, you know, there's also peak Elon, Dogecoin, 
crypto era. And at one time, we started talking about Bitcoin. By the way, my phone was melting down, right? I had to close all notifications apps because I think I got about 600 text messages, thousands of DMs from childhood friends all that afternoon. But one of my friends who was really into crypto at the time was texting me that when Elon started and we're talking about Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin and Dogecoin was ticking up, right? And then when we stopped talking about Bitcoin, the price ticked down, right? So you're like, you have this very surreal feeling of, wow, what you're doing live is having this huge impact, which is a very weird feeling. Anyway, so we end the hour and I was about to wrap up. I have this whole title song that I want to throw to Elon said, hey, can we bring up Vlad now? And I'm like, oh shit, I can't like dodge this now. And Vlad's in the audience and I'm like, sure, go for it. So he brings up Vlad and that was seriously an out-of-body experience. So I remember this tweet, which I have somewhere, where people going like, I can't believe what is happening right now. I right? have Elon and Vlad asked and Elon says something like, blink twice, you know, if somebody's pointing a gun to your head. It's just in one of these electric moments that you can't ever hope to replicate. And honestly, we just shut up, right? I think we're just shutting up. We just kept quiet and we were just bystanders and it was an epic 10 minutes. And yeah, I would say the next morning, we could not believe like every trending topic, every press piece. I don't think we'd ever recapture that. It's kind of once in a lifetime electric moment, but yeah, it was amazing. But thank you. That was definitely up there as a very interesting life experience. When that happened, I literally jumped out of my bed and ran screaming to my girlfriend saying, holy crap, this is happening right now. That will always be like just in my brain, that exact moment. And you created multiple moments of that. I remember when Mark Zuckerberg came on, it shut down Clubhouse too, right? And so it was really interesting because Clubhouse was everyone's way of getting social connection. And you were at the center of that. Personally, I get nervous every time there's like a podcast recording and these are done not live, right? You actually had basically the most high-profile guests. You were doing it live. How did you prepare for it? And what did you feel during those things? We've been doing this show for about a year. We now do it on video, which is also a learning experience. Here's a fun story. I did not want to do the show. A lot of the credit for the show goes to my wife because I actually hated the sound of my own voice. And I don't say this just to sound fake, humble, because I think there's a lot of people who were like me and hate how they look, how they sound, or terrified of what they do. So maybe the story helps. So I hated this out of my own voice. And I thought like, I have an accent. I speak too fast. You know, I'm much more comfortable writing. I never done this. But it is really a muscle. And when we started doing the show, I think we had a few things which we did right and a few things which we learned. And a few things that we did right. One was we were very optimistic about the conversations that we were having. And we were genuinely interested in every single guest. I think that really helped. The second thing is I went and tried to study all the great interviewers. Everyone from Oprah Winfrey to modern Howard Stern to Rogan to Lex Friedman. And I tried to kind of really understand what they did right and try to break it down. And Clubhouse and live audio is kind of an interesting medium. So think about this from a guest perspective. You often don't know me or you know, Elon knew me and some of the others knew me, but often like you don't know me or my wife. You are on stage in front of several thousand people with hosts you have never met before and you're live. And we haven't even met the guest before. And there's this weird, awkward dynamic. Like, you're kind of worried. You're trying to build up some chemistry. And there's a story which I love, which I try to always can take inspiration from. I grew up reading John Le Carre, who's this famous espionage thriller writer. And Le Carre famously hated doing press of any kind. But he has a story. He wrote this autobiographical book a few years ago. He tragically passed away recently. He talked about how in the late 80s, early 90s, he went on this French talk show. Think of it as a French version of The Tonight Show. And he hated it. He didn't want to go, but he had some contractual obligations and needed to go. And he shows up and the host comes by and it's all in French, right? Like it is the host, there's a kind of a live audience in the studio. And Lakara is like, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster. I hate this. It's not my format. And he wrote something in his book, which always stayed with me. He said in the first minute or so of this host talking to him, he immediately understood why the show really worked, right? And it was not the host was funny. It was not the host was good looking or charming. It's what the host in the first minute made Lakare feel like this is going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure you look good and this comes out well. And I always think about that. And by the way, that's an aspirational goal. But I think I think a lot about in the first few minutes, how do we project that to a guest, which is, hey, this is going to be okay, right? Like you're not going to get embarrassed. You're not going to get into some trouble. We're going to take care of you. We're going to make you look good. 
We're going to lean into what works for you. And sometimes it takes a while, but over time, you can really get to some amazing pieces placed with kids. I'll give you a couple of examples. One of my favorite episodes is the one that we did with Calvin Harris, who's a famous musician, right? And that was interesting because he's not from my world. He's not from the world of technology. I'd never met him before. And about 20 minutes in, he starts talking about how he got into music as a teenager, right? And he says that the reason he got into music is because he fell really sick when he was about 14, 15 years old and he was in bed for a year. It was pretty serious. And he couldn't do anything. And he kind of took out his laptop and he started goofing around. And so it was very open and very vulnerable. And I was like, I like, wow, it was such an open, honest moment and we could really get there, right? The other interesting example I remember is when we had Nomi Osaka and her sister. And Nomi is famously doesn't love doing press, doesn't love doing interviews. And she's very soft-spoken. And my wife and I were like, hey, how do we really get her to uh, open up and say things and be comfortable? And about halfway in, she started talking. I remember asking her, hey, I hate going to the gym. I hate working out. You must be doing this every single day. How do you get yourself motivated? And that turned into an amazing conversation where she, she says, like, I don't actually love training every day. And so once you work at it and over time, you can get guests to some amazing spots. So I think I would say for folks who are listening, one, just get started. I hate this sort of my own voice. Our early episode terrible, but you get better every single time. And the second part, I think genuine curiosity and kindness for the people you're interviewing goes a very, very long way. There's just something very intangible if you actually like your guests and you want them to do well and they can sense it, whether it's audio or video, and it brings out the best in them, it brings out the best in you and something magical happens for the audience. Have you ever then had a brain freeze during this time? I love this aspirationally, right? I'm going to use this, but have you ever had a moment where you freeze? And if so, do you have any strategies to deal with it then if you hit a hard point for yourself? All the time. And my strategy is I'm married to somebody who sends me a text or yells at me through the house to be like, what the <laughs> heck are you doing? Right. So I remember I can share this now, like about a year ago, one of our earliest guests was Laura Deming. And Laura Deming, for folks who don't know, is an amazing genius. She runs Longevity VC, one of the smartest people any of us would ever meet. She talks like a million miles a minute and is full of science. She had a whole focus about like, you know, longevity and human lifespan. But she's very, very clear very early on. Her focus is not, hey, how do one of us get live longer, right? Work out, better diet. That's not what she focused on. She's working on the scale of the whole human. And she was very clear about this. And for whatever reason, I had sort of zoned out or I had not caught that. And because I was distracted by some Twitter thing or something else technical. And about 10 minutes in, I said something like, hey, so by the way, for listeners listening, right, what can they do, right? And I remember my wife muting her mic and then yelling at me through the house right? because she doesn't a different. She's like, what are you doing? She just literally said that's not what she does. I was like, oh, and then I, I tried to recover. So, well, anyway, so one, yes, be married to an amazing person who's your co-host and who can kind of catch you. But it happens all the time, right? Uh, you have a brain freeze or you get distracted or you're not paying attention or the guest gets distracted. And I grew up watching and I still watch a lot of professional wrestling. I think some folks might know I'm a huge fan of the WWE. And one of the things you learn from WWE is like lots of weird stuff happens live and you have to roll with it. For example, I even last week we did an episode of Brian Armstrong and it's rough technically. If you listen to the episode, we had some audio issues. There was some latency. So the guests were talking over each other and we just tried to just keep powering through and going. And it is a muscle. The more you do it, the more it gets better. And honestly, the audience doesn't care. As long as you're delivering good content, you have good chemistry, the audience won't care. I'll end with one last story. I'm a huge fan of Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation. And the very first episode of Star Trek Next Generation is Encounter at Farpoint, right? And uh, Bill Beaton, who plays Wesley Crusher as a teenager, and they have this scene. And after one of these scenes, he goes to the director and he's like, hey, so I have a question. The same background extra has been walking around, right? Three times this scene, right? Do you think the viewers might be like, hey, it's the same person it's kind of going around three times? And the director goes, son, if the audience is noticing the background extra, you're in deep trouble, right? And I think there's something there. If your audience is noticing your brain freeze or if noticing technical issues, you're probably messing up on the core of your content. So that's mm -hmm. one of my, I love that story. Yeah, it's funny. You're talking about making guests feel comfortable. As we were talking, prepping for this show, Will, Andrew and I were like, Krishan does such a good job. Like you bring so much energy. And it's funny, even... As a guest on our show, I feel like you're bringing that vibe to us. And that's something that I think is very much conducive to having a good conversation. I also love the bit that you talked about with this being something you just have to keep practicing. A muscle you have to keep exercising, you get better at it. How does that translate to other things that you've done in the past? I mean, you mentioned writing, right? It sounds like that's something that you've constantly talked about, how that's been a big piece of your social media presence and how you've continued to write and write more pieces. 
And so how does this kind of translate? Is this how you can approach everything in terms of your mm-hmm. learning process and getting better at everything that you do? Well, I think on the getting comfortable in conversation piece, there's something very directly applicable to my day job now. One of the interesting things about venture, which I didn't realize, is a lot of the job is you meeting people for the very, very first time ever in a sort of a high stakes situation, right? I mean, imagine you're a founder, you're pitching us or any top tier firm and you're coming in, it's a high pressure situation, right? For them, you know, they want to do their best job. They want to tell the story of their company and their team as well as they can. And for me also, it's a very high pressure situation, right? Because I'm trying to get them comfortable. I'm trying to understand their story. I'm trying to understand their business. I'm trying to figure out all these things, the technology, the company, their prospects, all that fun stuff that VCs usually do, but also trying to get them to feel like, hey, I want to work with these folks, right? I want to work with them. And you're doing this in a very short, compressed period of time. And obviously, over the last two years, you're doing this over Zoom. So you're doing it in a small rectangle on a laptop somewhere, not pixelated if you're lucky. So it's hard. And I think in some ways, doing the Clubhouse show, doing this show has gotten me better at my day job. Because often when you're doing these conversations, things can go weird. Somebody joins late, there's some technical issue, the slides don't work, or you can't present because Zoom has to restart Zoom to actually get the permissions. And these things kind of often throw off people, or you're just meeting somebody for the first time and they're nervous. And I think doing this show has gotten me a lot better of trying to understand how to take conversation, where to take it in certain directions, how to get everybody involved. For example, there might be multiple founders and one of them may not be speaking up much. Alexa, multiple guests and one of them may not be speaking up much. So I think some of these kind of skill sets wind up translating. Of course, I like to think they wind up translating. You might have talked to the founders who talk to me and they might be like, well, Sita was a total jerk, right? On the show and when we talk to them. So I don't know, the jury might be out there. But I think that's number one. There's also another interesting point, which is, If you listen to any of my podcasts, anything I say, I always see people go write online. Because when you write online, I think when you create content online, it acts as a beacon. The smartest people in the world come and find you for anything you say, and even however obscure it is. And I bet that this podcast right now, there's going to be somebody who's going to send all of us an email, a note, a DM at the end of this. And it's also like a huge, I think, part of what I do now. Because again, if you're a founder, right, and you want to pick a person to partner with your company, it is a really serious decision. You can't take back the VC you work with. And you're often doing the very sort of compressed time frame, right? A fundraise round might take place in a few days or a small week. And you're trying to pick somebody you want to work with for the next decade. And the more you feel like you know the other person, right? I think it really helps. And if you listen to my show over the last year or so, you probably have a good sense of who I am, right? You have a sense of my energy, my ethics, my values, what I'm interested in, what I'm good at, what I'm really bad at. And you probably have a sense of who I am. It's obviously not complete. And I think that really helps. So I think writing online, creating online is a huge, huge superpower because what happens is people will seek you out. And often really smart people will seek you out and that leads to great things for you. Prior to being an investor, you led product teams at Snap, Facebook, and Twitter. In your own words, you were collecting the Avengers Infinity Gauntlet of consumer platform companies. So when you started at A16Z, you started on the consumer team. But earlier this year, you went full-time web through crypto. What fueled this decision? This comes up a lot. It was purely organic. So my background before A16Z, I see you've done your homework. Great job. I sort of did the trifecta of consumer social companies before I did this. But I've also been like a very active angel investor used to involve companies like Cameo and Figma and a bunch of others. And when I joined the firm, my whole focus was building consumer, or was investing in consumer companies, right? But something weird happened, which is my very first week at the firm, which was by the way, very dramatic because the day minus one was Elon, right? So I had a very dramatic first week at the firm, to put it mildly. And my very first week at the firm, Chris Dixon at the time, who I, I wasn't working with at the time because he was in crypto, pinged me and he said, hey, there's this founder of this NFT minting company called Bitski, and he would love to meet you and he'd love to work with you. And I was like, great. And Donnie of Bitski, who's amazing, had known of me, I think through Twitter or something else. And he came from a Web2 world before he moved to crypto. He was a former founder of a Web2 company, was a well-known designer. So he kind of had these non-crypto roots as well. And we want to listen to the pitch and we decided, hey, we really want to partner with Donnie and Bitski. Over the next weekend, I did a long walk with him and convinced him to work with us. It was amazing. So my very first investment at the firm 
was actually not a consumer investment, but was actually a crypto investment, right? It kind of almost happened accidentally. So that, I think, set off my crypto pill journey. So I think that was a big part because I got pulled into working with the crypto team and crypto. The second part of it was, I think, the show, right? Through the show, we had on lots of interesting crypto guests. We had Dylan Field. We had on people and his collectors. We had on Punk4156. We had on Anatoly of Solana. Pretty much everyone notable in the crypto world. We had Balaji. We had, we had them at guests. And I think what it really exposed me to was the community. I remember feeling the amazing energy from the community. For example, when we had the chain runners on our show, I remember the Discord just going crazy. And just the energy from that was so infectious. And I was like, oh, there's something really magical happening here, both in the technical level and on the community level. I think the third part was, I would say the last 10 years of my career have been spent the insights of these large consumer social tech platforms. And I saw with Web3, basically a new playbook for how to build these social platforms, right? Things like having economics and governance for the people who use them, the right of exit where you can pick your client or take your data with you. And all these things would just seem like totally new tools and nobody really knows where this all winds up and what is actually possible. But it was very clear there was something totally different and new. And I'm old, probably older than a lot of people listening to this show right now. And I grew up in the early 2000s when I was kind of a, a late teenager getting into professional for the first time at the early rise of Web2. And that had a very similar energy. I remember people looking at Wikipedia and going like, what an insect, but anybody can read that just sounds ridiculous, right? Or when Flickr came out, why would anybody want to see everyone else's photos? Same with YouTube. And all these things, which is a question and seem bizarre, but there was this energy about the community. There was all these people building interesting technology around it. And I haven't really felt that for 15 or so years. I think I, that was there a little bit when the IO app store came out. I think you've had some of the energy. But the first time after that early web too, I hit the word paradigm shift sounds so corporate but it, this does feel like an entirely new playbook for the internet. And of course, look, we can get into why it matters and why that's important. But that energy for me was infectious. That community for me was infectious. So I was getting closer and closer to crypto over the last year. And at the beginning of this year, Ben and Chris and I had like a long conversation. And I think what really sparked it was my observation that I've always kind of been interested in crypto as kind of a nerd. I used to have my own miner and write some Solidity code, just like I think pretty much anybody technical played around with crypto. But for the last couple of years, I saw crypto move from the infrastructure layer that used to be, right? For many years, before 2014, 2013, it was like Bitcoin and then the early Bitcoin era. Then post-2014, you had ETH and then a few years later, you had ICOs, then you had the summer of DeFi, which was very interesting to me intellectually, but I didn't feel like I was right for it until I think last year happened. And then you had NFTs, you had DAOs, you had all these things where you could sign in with ENS or your wallet. And those things were like, well, I was like, wait, the rise of gaming, all sorts of different gaming and crypto integrations. And that made me go like, wow, these are like consumer behavior tied to crypto. And that made me get really excited, right? And so that's what sparked me to kind of go join crypto full time. And now all I do is invest in crypto slash Web3. But I think I'm just one of many, right? I think the other thing I was reacting to was all of my friends from Facebook, from Twitter, from all these Web2 worlds, all wanting to move to crypto or they'd already moved to crypto. For example, one of my close friends is Shiva Rajaram, who used to work at Spotify, Apple, Meta, and now recently just joined as head of product at OpenSea. I saw all these people moving full time or spending the nights and weekends working on this. And I was like, huh, all this talent now going to move. And this is where like amazing companies and projects created. So, ta-da, moved over. There's so much to ask about, but before I get into all the topics you just touched on, I wanted to set the stage a little bit. So ACNZ just raised $4.5 billion crypto fund, bringing the total amount to $7.6 billion raised. Your colleague, Chris Dixon, says that we are now entering in the golden era of Web3. So what is the golden era of Web3? I think there are multiple ways to look at it. I think the pervasive sense is we are very, very early, right? Like, And I think Chris, by the way, talks about this a lot better than I do. But you kind of have these eras of the internet, right? I think all of us have lived through the early 90s, kind of the original version of the internet. And then you had Web2, which really brought in user-generated content and programmable APIs. But something happened after Web2 where a lot of the power, the data, the momentum behind Web2 got highly centralized. And to be honest, I don't complain as much because my career was at the heart of some of these centralized companies. I was at Facebook, I was at Twitter, I was at Snap. I have lots of friends in like a lot of these other companies. And I think these companies were amazing and they built great products. But I do feel we lost some of the spirit and the ethos behind Web2. Like I think if you're kind of around in 2004, 2005, there was kind of this 
Cambrian explosion of people building cool stuff. There are people who will mashups. I don't know. There was a project called Yahoo Pipes where you could take Flickr photos and map them on Google Maps. And every project, every site had an open API. The idea was that you could export your friends. And a lot of these things were either went away because of business needs or because it was not technically feasible. And now power got really centralized right in a few companies. And the one of the reasons it got centralized was because we didn't have an alternate playbook and alternate technology infrastructure to go build a decentralized projects until the rise of Web3, until the rise of the token. And I think with the token, you know, have something Chris calls the tokens, like the atomic unit of the information age, right? You know, something where you can orchestrate, govern, reward behavior and incentivize behavior. And I think now you have a playbook to go build something new. And I think we are just in the early beginning stages. People ask me about Web3 Gaming or Web3 Social. I'm like, we're just getting started, right? 2003, and people are poking around with XML HTTP request and building what is eventually going to become Gmail, what is eventually going to become React, and all these things that we take for granted. So it's very, very early. And that's what makes it super exciting. So Lee, Andrew, and I have been really trying to learn about the space. Our audience, at the same time, is also trying to learn about it. But there's just so much to learn, right? You wrote a tweet about how you entered the space and how you onboarded in the space. And could you tell us a little bit about your advice in terms of learning the space? Good question. For folks who are listening to this, I'm pretty sure everybody has probably heard of crypto or Web3 by now. Especially if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably definitely heard of it. And your level of exposure to it may vary, right? For some people, you may just seen some NFT projects and you might have heard of Ethereum, maybe you bought some Bitcoin or ETH. And it depends on what your background or your skill set is. If you're technical, if you're an engineer, you're a PM, I highly, highly suggest writing some code. I highly suggest looking at how to write Hello World and Solidity, getting started, understanding the basics, because I think it's going to give you such a strong foundation of how these things work, right? How does mining work? How does proof of stake work? How does a smart contract get executed? All those things. And I think it's going to give you a strong foundation. And I would say, go write some code, go roll up your sleeves. And if you're not technical, and even if you're technical, not technical for everybody, I would say you have to engage with the community, right? Crypto is part technology, but part culture, part people, and the people in the culture are hugely important. So you have to figure out who are the right people to follow on Twitter, go join a few Discord, figure out how to add value. And that's going to help you a lot more than actually reading some analysis. If you're looking for pointers, I think Bitpies, but I think A16Z has a crypto canon, which has a bunch of links to white papers and videos, which I think is fantastic. And I think it's a great place to start. But I would say roll up your sleeves. And rolling up your sleeves could mean writing code. It could mean playing with some projects. It could mean participating in a community. By the way, none of these things do I ever say, you know, spending money. All these things can be just done for free. But I would say just spending the effort to kind of deeply understand how these things work will just be fun. If you are interested in the world of technology and if you're a technologist, which I assume a lot of your listeners are, it'll just be nerdy fun and it'll really help you understand like hey, what is going on here. Can you talk a bit about just how your team is set up and how it works. I know you guys have a big crypto team, it's a huge fund. How do you spend your time? What do you focus on? And are there different teams, different people focus on different parts of the ecosystem? Mm -hmm. A lot of the credit for what we do in ASIC Crypto goes to Chris Dixon. I think the origin story of ASIC and Z Crypto is Chris's investment in Coinbase. And that was even before there was no crypto fund. It was just the fund. But I think that led to a world of just crypto. And I think the first crypto fund was about maybe four years ago, five years ago. Obviously, since then, we are now on fund four. And speaking at the moment, we have about 70 people on the team. And a small part of the team is what we call the investing team. And I'm part of the investing team. It's like me, Chris Dixon. Ali, Ariana, we have a team of what, like maybe I think seven to eight people who kind of support us. But that's really a very small part of the overall team. Most of the team is actually founder facing and founder focused. It's really about helping the founders and the companies that we work with. So there's a set of things which I think you take for granted and expect from any top tier VC fund. So we have a fantastic set of people who help you hire talent from either individual contributors and engineers to all the way to senior talent. We have a marketing team, you know, led by Kim Milosevic, who came from, you know, running comms and marketing for Coinbase. We obviously have like a huge podcast and writing effort led by Sonal. So some of these things get taken for granted. But I think what got really interesting is I think, this, and a lot of this again goes to Chris, is he basically thought about how do we build a modern VC firm which is really tailored to what a Web3 native project founder company would need, right? So I think a large part of our focus is helping people with that. So there's a really large team which is really focused on technology, like protocol engineering, token design, 
tokenomics led by Eddie Lazarin, who's amazing. And it's kind of a really large part of our effort that goes up and down the stack, right? From writing code to helping people with the design, there's all sorts of things that we do. They work very, very closely with the newly announced, I think, ACC crypto research team, which is led by Tim Roughgarden, who's really a legend. And their job is to really kind of push the state of the art of crypto forward and to some extent maybe help our companies when it works out. We have a security team led by Nas and Riaz who came from Facebook slash Meta where they worked on what is the Libra project and they're amazing and they help with everything from security bugs to audits and whole sorts of things. So our whole focus on the team is the investing part of it is actually a small part of the team if you think about it just in terms of actual headcount or manpower. A large part of the most of the team is really about how do we go help our founders and the companies that work with because at the end of the day that's where we make our reputation you know what we like to say is like hey go talk to the founders who work with us and that's kind of really the core of what we do. You mentioned before that you were seeing a lot of your smart friends going from Web 2 to Web 3. Why is that happening? Why is there a Web 2 to Web 3 migration? And what are you seeing there? It's a good question. I think for anybody in the technology world, you're probably aware of crypto for the last six, seven years, right? You probably bought some Bitcoin. You, you probably ran a miner. You probably have a Coinbase account. You're probably definitely aware for the last six, seven years. But for the last, I'm going to say, year and a half or two, something really shifted. And I think it is really the rise of NFTs, DAOs, and these app-level projects and companies for Web3, where I think it unlocked a whole new set of talent. You know, people, product managers, people who are designers, people who are community managers, not just core engineers. And of course, that's obviously still a big part of things. And I think there are a few motivations. And I get a lot of debates about this on Twitter. But I think the real primary motivation is just fun. Right. It's a new landscape. There's something really fun. And I think all of us who are technologists, geeks at heart, have spent some late nights spelunking through some old code, syncing some Git repo and poking around and nerding out. It just seems super fun, right? I think a part of it is because when Web2 first came out and mobile first came out, it seemed like a totally new landscape, right? Like I remember in 2008, you had, what is that game where you could like, this little plane which would fly around and you kind of like, you know, try and make sure it doesn't crash, right? Or the first ever Facebook mobile app came out. It seemed like a totally new canvas. But oh, after 10 years, we kind of know how to build a mobile app, right? And we, there's a playbook, how to go think about traffic acquisition, how to build the stack. But it's still amazing and a lot of obviously amazing companies being built every day on it. But it is probably a well understood framework at this point. I mean, if you're a new team building a mobile app, right, you probably don't have to reinvent large parts of the wheel. You know what kind of stack you have to use, you know what the design problems are. And I think one of the reasons Web3 is super interesting is because the canvas is totally new. And every day I talk to some amazing founder who has a totally new, interesting idea for a different kind of token, a different kind of blockchain, and it's just like reinventing the stack from the ground up. And I think that's just so fun and interesting and energizing for people after maybe like 10 years of just working on one space. So I think that's a large part of what's motivating. That's number one. The second part, and I'm not going to pretend this next, is, is obviously the economics. People see the prices, they've seen this over the last few years, and they're like, hey, I want to be part of something which can work out for me economically. That's definitely a part of it, but I really think it's number one. The third part of it, I think, is part philosophical. And I see this more in, say, things like the Web3 Social, which I've been spending a lot of time on, which is a lot of people really drawn to the idea of no central authorities, really drawn to the idea of decentralization, really drawn to the idea that the community itself can govern and take part in the economics of the things that they are participating in, right? So I think it's a combination of all of those, which has really brought people in. And every single day, I'm having a conversation with some staff engineer at Meta or some senior person at like Amazon, just pretty much any company was like, hey, if I'm jumping into Web3, which company should I join? What project should I play with? Either just kind of play around or to think about joining somebody. And I definitely expect that to continue. So not only are you a product expert on creator platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and Snap, but you're also a creator yourself with The Good Time Show. So what's your perspective on Web3 as a creator and social media and all the things you're interested in? Some of it really colored by my past. I joined Facebook, I think, in 2013. And so it's about like 10 years. I spent eight, nine years working at Facebook, Snap, and Twitter. So I've been in the insides of large social media companies. I've not been inside TikTok or Twitch but or YouTube, but definitely some of the others. And in the early part of last decade, there was a contract, a social compact between the social media companies and people like us who are using it. And I think the argument went something like, hey, you give us content, your tweets, your videos, your posts, and we're going to give you distribution, right? We're going to get you in front of hundreds of thousands of people. You're going to get a lot of views. And that was the deal. And by the way, that deal was fantastic. And that obviously changed the lives and trajectories of so many 
people and companies. And that was amazing. But I think over the last few years, creators started demanding a different kind of deal. One that involved economics and one that involved having a say, having a seat at the table. The economics one, I think, you know, even if you set aside Web3, if you look at companies like Cameo, right, where you get paid to send somebody an invite, or just to put it out there, OnlyFans, right, where you're getting paid to do adult content, you had a slightly different relationship with these platforms, where it was not just views for content, it was, hey, I'm running a career as a creator, right? This is my full-time job. I'm kind of running a one-person business or maybe a multi-person business, and you need to help me with that. And in some ways, I think Web3 gives people a whole new toolbox for that. And so we just put out a report a couple of weeks ago called the A6 in the State of Crypto. I think the idea is to be do it. We're going to do it every single year and highly recommend people beat it. It has all sorts of fun data. And one of the things I think we look at in there is what we call the take rate, right? Which is you are giving content to a platform. The platform is obviously making money through it, right? They show ads against it and they make money through it. And then how much money are you getting back? And so if the platform takes a cut and they give you back, what are you getting back? And if you think about it that way, right? Like platforms take like a very, very hefty cut, right? Like, you know, I ask people this, like, when was the last time you saw a check from Twitter which is probably never. And even if you saw a check from the other platform, it's probably tiny compared to the money they're making. And I think Web3 represents a shift in this power dynamic. It's like Jeff Bezos' famous quote, which is like, your margin is my opportunity. So Web3 is basically like, hey, creators really hold so much power. How can we make sure that they get rewarded and they have an equal say in governance? So I think if you look at some of the emerging Web3 projects out there, which are creator-focused, I think you see a lot of that, which is cutting out the middleman, creators being able to directly go to their community and work with them. I think that's number one. I think the second part of it is not having lock-in. If you're a creator, you want to have direct access to your audience. You don't want your audience to live inside your graph on Instagram or TikTok or Twitter, as the case may be. And at Web3, it gives you a chance to actually directly be able to talk to your audience and work with them. And I think that's very, very powerful for creators too. Now, I'll be the first to say this is all super early. We're in the very first days. There is no mainstream Web3 social company yet. I have my hopes for a few of these projects. We are obviously very early. But I think it's the playbook which is super interesting. And I, I always go back to like examples. When I was a kid, I don't know about you folks, but we used to have these encyclopedia salesmen who would come around the house and they'd bring on the, uh, all of you looking at me blankly here, I'm so old, but they're going to bring these big boxes of encyclopedias and you know, they would be like, hey, do you want to buy one? It's kind of a big deal to buy one, it's kind of expensive. I did that before, so I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I hope it's still not a thing, but I cried and cried in once. I convinced my dad to buy me one. And then Encarta, which was a great project for Microsoft, which had this gorgeous like DVD or CD, multiple CDs, and you get these videos and photos and written by experts kind of the next generation. And then you had Wikipedia come out, right? And the early days of Wikipedia was just terrible, right? But you could see that it ha- was a new playbook for something which could be magical. And I think that's kind of the era. I think it was just us being in 2002, 2003, we're just seeing what could be possible. Definitely not the final form, but we see what could be possible. And that's what makes it so exciting. So I have a question. You mentioned you did some angel investing before, and obviously when you joined A16Z, you first were on the consumer team. I'm curious, in terms of just your journey becoming a venture investor, what has been surprising to you or different? I mean, given you were mostly at like larger tech companies before, you were never a founder or at a smaller startup before. So what in the investing process or in that game is different than when you expected? And Mm -hmm. what have you learned becoming an investor yourself? A lot of people ask me this. In when I was thinking about joining the firm, Mark and Rayson would tell me that you should only become a venture capitalist if you're really, really, really sure that you're done with being an operator, or that you're done with actually building things. And he would always tell me, if you ever want to go scratch the ditch, go scratch the ditch and we'll be here waiting for you. And you should be done with that. Before I did this full-time, I used to do a lot of angel before. And by the way, being an angel is nothing like being a full-time VC. They're totally different. We can talk about the difference of those two, if you'd like. But in a full-time VC, right, it's very different. And I spend a lot of time talking to, I don't like the word operators, but people kind of worked in regular jobs and become VCs. And some who had done amazing things, some who had hated VC and kind of gone back to operators. And I asked them, hey, what should I know? Because I never done investing professionally before. And I think I heard a few themes and I can add on some of that to my own experience of last year and a half. The first part is when you're a VC versus being an operator, the first thing is you're not actually doing the job. I'm not running product. I'm not making hires. I'm not being a founder. You be very careful about not kidding yourself into thinking you're doing a job. Your job is to pick the founder and then support them. So it's a very, very different dynamic. And I think the reason why it's, this is important to point out is 
two things. Number one, it can be very tempting for me. For example, my background is in product, right? So it can be very tempting for me. Like, hey, I'll just jump into Figma and I'll give you my random two cents on where those pixels should go, right? I used to, I've done that for the last 10 years. But a couple of things wind up happening. The first one is that you're not close to the action. You're not in the trenches every single day. You used to be in the trenches in my old job. I used to be in trenches on Twitter and Facebook. I'm not in the trenches with my company. So you don't know how all the context gives them advice. So that's number one. The second part of it is if you look at the great founders, right, think Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg, they didn't let their VCs run product for them, right? Like, so there's almost kind of this anti-adverse selection which winds up happening. So the first thing is you have to set aside your ego and you have to genuinely enjoy helping people. I think the one thing I tell people is you want to become a VC is do you enjoy helping people? Did you enjoy being a coach, right? And will your ego and will your personal satisfaction come from just seeing other people succeed and your success being tied to that? Because if you can't handle that, by the way, no big deal. A lot of people can't. That's fine. Then don't do this. Because at this job, you really have to genuinely want other people to do well, other people to succeed, because that is your job. That's number one. The second part of the job, which I think is really surprises people, and I knew this intellectually coming in, but I really experienced it uh, now, is when you're an operator, and I think all of you have full-time jobs as PMs, you make so many decisions every single day, right? Hire someone or not hire someone. To write a product brief or not write a product brief. To ship something or not ship something. To launch a campaign, not launch a campaign, right? And a lot of those are not super high stakes because you can always unwind out of them. Some product launches and go, well, that's fine. You can unroll it and launch something else. And I used to do that all the time. So you kind of get used to having these very frequent, but I would say low intensity decisions. And there's definitely some high intensity decisions, like hiring somebody is a high intensity, high stake decision. I would say taking on a new role is like a high stake decision, but mostly you can undo most of them. When you're investing, the way you make decisions totally change because you're going from making frequent decisions to making very high impact decisions. Do you invest in a company or not? And once you make the decision to invest in somebody, that is a partnership for life, right? We have companies that we've been working with for the over 10 years now. And the rest of your professional career, you have to make sure those companies succeed and you're going to help them. So you can't unwind out of them. The second part is you make decisions maybe only a few times a year, right? You're not making this every single day. So you really have to think long and hard about the art of decision making and how you think about things because you just can't experiment. Experimenting is very painful and every, very costly here. So I think I got a lot better about thinking about my own biases, thinking about how I make decisions because you're making such high impact decisions. That's number two. The third part of it is kind of tied to that is when you're an operator, your dopamine hit can come very quickly, right? You launch something, it works, it's amazing. You ship something and you get a lot of positive tweets or the graphs go up or whatever, the revenue goes up. You're like, great. Or you close a great sale. In the world of VC, sometimes companies take a long time. For example, Coinbase spent many years not being thought of as a great company, right? Until obviously they became an amazing company. So you have to be okay with spending years waiting for something to really take off. And if you're used to kind of the dopamine cycle of like, hey, this thing worked, I, I made this amazing product launch, or this graph is going up and to the right every single day, that's really hard. So those are the kind of things I think about really surprising. But on the other hand, what I think you would love is if you like intellectual diversity. One of the sort of the secrets about this job is that the smartest, best people in the world come to you and explain to you what it is they do. And you kind of have to picture them. Oh my God, I'm so lucky that you get amazing founders who come to you every single day and you have really no right to know what they're up to, but they explain to you what their world is. And that's just so freaking cool. So amazing. And I think this is a unique privilege for us to have that. And the second part is just really fun to see other people succeed, right? Helping them out of a tough spot helping them close a hire or helping them with something or the other. It's just so good. So I think those are just so rewarding in so many different ways. So that's kind of how I think about like the difference between operator and being a VC. Yeah. So I want to follow up on that because you mentioned the difference between angel investing and investing as a professional at a VC firm. So I want to jump into the details of that. And then to follow up on that is also given the size of the fund, does that also put certain guardrails or do you feel the pressure of deploying so much capital? And does that also affect what type of investments you make? As an angel, you can probably invest in projects that you're passionate about, you're excited about. But do you feel the pressure of making returns for your investors and for the fund? I think there's a bunch of things that are very different from being an angel and being a VC, right? When I was an angel, I would write, but I have this whole other theory of like how being an angel is great for a lot of people. I would write these, at least I might sound very privileged, but what is maybe like some really small checks for companies that would write like $5,000 checks and so on. And I have a whole speech on how to think about angel investing. But when you're an angel, you're one of many, many people, right? You are not on the hook. You're not responsible to the company. When you're a VC, you're really responsible 
for the company, right? You need to help them. You need to make sure they succeed through all of your superpowers and capabilities. So I think just a very different contract, social contract, legal contract between you and the founder. That's number one. The second part of it is, the way I think we think about it is we are very, very loose on the category, but we're very, very strict on the companies that we invest within the category. For example, if you look at Chris Dixon, he's invested in VR, he's invested in drones, he's invested in crypto. Some of them worked out really well. Some of them, we'll see how they work out. Crypto's obviously worked out really well. And that's fine, right? You can kind of experiment, go crazy, right? Like think of some crazy new category, right? And we can go explore a new category of companies. But what we really don't want to do is a lot of what a firm commits to is when we work with you, we won't work with the competition. We really try really hard to kind of support you in any which way we can. And that behooves us to make sure like when you invest in a category that we have done the work, right? That we have met every single company, every single founder. And by the way, sometimes these founders may not have started their company yet, right? So the competition to the person you're talking to may show up six months down the road and you have to be aware of like, okay, when you make a bet, you want to go all in, right? You want to support them any which way you can. You want to give them all the resources and the leverage that you can possible. So when you're a VC, I think what you have to do is for us, we do a lot of work around like understanding the space, right? Mapping out all the players, right? Everything from incumbents to new founders to people who may not be having started the company yet. We try to figure out like who's doing well, who's not doing well. What is our belief on what is the approach that we take on the space before we go make a bet? Because once we make a bet, you know, once we partner with the company, we want to go all in. We want to be like, hey, we want to help you any which way we can to make sure you go win in this category. So the amount of homework, like when I was an angel, I could just meet somebody for coffee and be like, I like you. I like your vibe. Let's work together. <laughs> and that was great, right? And I want to see that work out really well for me. In your VC, you just can't do that. You have to be so much more thoughtful. By the way, I think it's also true on the reverse side for a founder. So when you're a founder, it's really not hard to get in somebody for a $25,000 check or a $10,000 check onto your cap table when you're raising several million dollars. That's easy. But when you're getting a lead investor or a board member, right, that person is going to partner with you forever, right? You're going to have to call this person in the middle of the night. You're going to have some very painful situations. So you really need to understand that person. So when you're a VC, I think it's mutually exclusive, right? When you're an angel, you can probably get somebody to work with you by being nice, being credible. But when you're a VC, you have to really convince the founder that you're the best partner for them because a lot of the other folks they could work with are probably really good also, right? At least in this level of the business, you know, a lot of the people that I compete with are also really, really good at what they do. So you have to really convince them, like, hey, we are the best partners for you. Because if you pick us, you probably can't pick some of the others in this particular round because just of the, the round dynamics. So it goes both ways. And you guys, obviously, Andreessen's built this amazing platform. And speaking of going all in, I have a spicier question for you, Shiram. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know if you'd uh, watched the All In conference where they brought on Keith Rabois and he was talking about this dynamic with the current fund jumping into Web3 and they asked him who he thought were great early stage investors and great Web3 investors. So I want to ask you the same question. Who do you think does a good job in the Web3 space? And also just also, I, I think building off of that whole dynamic of, for example, you guys having such a big fund, but obviously Andreessen has been doing early stage for a while now. And then you guys have like this system. And I would do want to ask about that later too, is the decision-making process, but just how you look at other funds and how they're building their teams and, and building their investments and the thesis of the Web3. Well, I'm going to sort of dodge this because a couple of things, like I'm obviously <laughs> very biased. I like to think that we're probably up there in terms of what we do. But I can say this also because like a lot of it happened before I showed up here, right? A lot of the credit goes to, honestly, I think, Chris, part of it is, I think one of the things I think Chris and the team really pride themselves on is we have been here for a very, very long time, right? Not me personally, but the team, right? Chris invested in Coinbase, I would say like maybe, I don't know, eight, nine years ago now, 2013, 2014. And him and the team, and when I say the team, it was not 60, 70 people, it was like three, four people for a long time, right? And they've been through multiple cycles. And imagine being in 2017, 2018, you are in crypto winter and you're attending every single party and everyone goes, oh, you're still into investing in that Bitcoin thing? Is this still a thing? Right? And you're like, yep. And you're still going through that. And I think all those years, all that struggle has really built the firm such a fantastic reputation and credibility, which is like, okay, that just about our belief in the space, our belief in the community, us being such good participants. And I think, again, Chris deserves so much of the credit for this. And I'm really proud of that. I'm trying my own part in my own little ways to kind of like extend that and, and to grow that. So I think that's a huge part of it. But having said that, let me put it this way, right? One thing which I think can intimidate people about crypto, especially talent, is that they can often think, hey, am I too late, right? I wasn't in 
early in Bitcoin. I wasn't early in ETH. Am I too late? One of the amazing things about crypto is it's always changing and always new. Like NFTs didn't exist two years ago, right? ERC-271 is, I think, like two and a half, three years old. All the interesting NFT projects and companies are from late 2019, early 2020, at best, if not later. So the interesting about crypto is like there are all these new people coming, there are all these new projects coming in. And I think that as a firm, we have to stay on top of our game, right? And we have to figure out what is the product that we offer founders and constantly be adapting and changing. For example, the research thing that we're doing now, our token engineering, protocol engineering, all that is like a new effort because we're like, hey, that's what founders need in 2020, 2021, 2022. And we're constantly changing. So it really behooves us to stay on top of things and change and adapt. Thank you for explaining that. And talking about how committed you are to founders, right? And how thorough you are evaluating each segment. Given Web3 is so new, how do you seek to find all the founders and companies in a segment that you identify? When I say we, it's not just me, Chris, Ali, Ariana. We have like a fantastic team of people, people like Jane Lippincard, Kara Wu, lots of people. And it just the entire team, which is always out there, right? They're meeting founders, they're, they hang out on Twitter, they hang out on Discord, they're playing with projects, they're just out there. So I think a lot of the credit goes to the team. And it really depends, right? I think what we try and do is to have a very prepared mindset for the spaces that we go into. And mapping out a space can happen in many different ways, right? Sometimes it's simple as, hey, what are the interesting people in the community talking about? Like, for example, if you have three founders you talk to and they all say, hey, Person X is working on this really interesting, fun thing, right? And you're like, oh, we should probably go check out what Person X is working on. Or if three people all show you the same new dashboard tool that they're using, we should, like, we should go probably go check out this dashboard tool and see what's that about, right? So, so much of it just happens organically. Like so much of, if you look at our internal Slack, it would be somebody going, hey, this is the third time in the last two months I've heard about X. X could be a company, a project, a person. We should take a look at X, right? Or we should figure out like what is going on or maybe you know we took a look at x like three months ago but something has changed right the numbers are going up or i'm hearing that they're doing a lot better so you can always just hearing more because you're deeply embedded in the community uh, very authentically and i think that's like a large part of what we do so that's number one the second thing is i think we try and periodically just meet with founders right we host events, we are meeting with people all the time individually, we're doing content like this, it gets people to reach out to us. And that always helps us build an updated understanding of what is happening in space. So it might be a super satisfying answer. I think it's how any of us map out a space personally. Like when I try and map out a new space, what I try and do is like I try and find out all the interesting people that I can in the space just on Twitter, just on GitHub. I follow all of them. I set up coffee meetings with every single one of them that I can and just have a conversation. I ask them for who else should I be thinking about? Who else should I be talking about? What should I be playing with? And after doing this for a couple of months, you probably have like a good network that you can map out of, okay, what is interesting here? What are the key nodes of people, technology, companies that you really need to focus on? And, and I think what we do as a firm is somewhat similar. Yeah, I loved it. I think you gave a lot of specifics about that that aren't to be taken for granted. It is obvious at a high level, but I loved your details. So thank you for that. One small tangent on that, or just one piece. So what's your favorite coffee place to take people? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I think COVID has really sadly just impacted things deeply here. So I would say I had a bunch of coffee places which before COVID, which have either shut down or totally removed seating. So pre-COVID, I would take people to Farley's in Portero Hill a lot. I had Epicenter in Soma, which shut down. I think the Creamery, which was iconic in Soma, which I think is no longer there. So a lot of these iconic places, which I feel really sadly about. These days, it's kind of a mix. Honestly, I've kind of on the hunt for a new coffee place in San Francisco. So if folks know a good, quiet, place with Wi-Fi that you can do meetings in, which is let me know. I'm all yours. I'm on the lookout for a new space. What do you look for in founders? I get asked this question a lot. A few things, right? Some of these are going to sound like cliches. And by the way, my wife, who's a multi-time founder, when she hears me, she's like, oh my gosh, you sound like such a boring VC now. Like, just listen to yourself. And I get a lot of that. So that may be true. I think there's a couple of things. The first one is if you're doing interesting work, right? It's my job to come seek you out. I tell people this all the time. If I spend the next couple of years here and I make zero investments, I'll get fired, right? Because the job is to go seek out amazing founders and to go make investments. And that's what I try and do every single day, right? I'm trying to seek out who's amazing and building something either today or tomorrow, or maybe they want to leave that company and do something. And I'm always trying to go meet them because that is the heart of what I do, right? My job here at the firm is not to tweet, not to do anything. It's really go find amazing people and then go back to the right company. So that's really my job. 
Now, I think so much of what founders can do is just do interesting work, right? Interesting work can mean building interesting things, tweeting, writing interesting things. One of the best ways is to get any VC, not just us, to come find you is just do interesting work, right? We will find you. We will slide into your DMs. We will send you a cold email. We will send you that cold LinkedIn message. And I think some of you, a lot of people have seen a cold DM from me saying, hey, I really liked your tweet. I really like your podcast. I really like this project that you're building. I would love to meet you and chat with you because that is the heart of what I try and do. So that's one. Having said that aside, when I'm meeting a founder, what I'm trying to understand is a couple of things. The first one is just their life story, which is why are they building this thing now, right? What led them up to this? And I think all the great founders always have an amazing origin story where you can see why what they're building now is the sum of their experiences. And I think this is closely tied to another concept which we talk about a lot, which is the idea maze, which is if you have somebody who has spent deep time in a space and is working on a project because of that, you can really tell. For example, somebody like Dan Rimmer worked on Podcaster. Dan has spent several years at Coinbase, has spent years and years thinking about decentralization, has very active on social media. He spent a lot of time thinking about these things, right? So when he works on something, it is very obvious that, okay, this person has spent years thinking about this project, as opposed to if you just thought about this idea like a couple of months ago and, you know, we're building it. That could work also, but it really shows. So I don't think I'm spending a lot of time trying to understand the person's life story and also how deeply has this person solved the idea. And the reason I'm thinking about that is often, very rarely do I understand a space or a company as well as the founder does because the founder understands it. They're building it. They're working on it every single day. They are living and breathing it. So I need to just more evaluate, like, has this person deeply thought about all the questions? And one of the things that the best founders do, by the way, is you can't stop them talking, right? They'll just talk about like, hey, here's why we did X, because we tried out Y and Z doesn't really work because of blah, blah, blah. And often I may not actually be able to evaluate whether they're right or wrong, but I can tell. And by the way, this is very hard to fake and sometimes I'm trying to fake it, but it's really hard to fake the authenticity of having tried out four, five, six different things. For example, if somebody talks to me about social media, I don't know a lot about most things, but I've spent 10 years in social media companies, right? Like I can talk somewhat intelligently about ranking algorithms or content moderation because I spent 10 years of my life in there and it, that's really hard to fake for me. But if you ask me about something totally different, I'd be like, I have no idea what I'm talking about. So, and I'm often looking for the depth and that commitment. That's kind of one thing. The second thing I think I'm looking for is the trajectory and the slope. So there's kind of, I think, this myth that if you're a founder, you shouldn't talk to a VC unless you're about to raise capital. Even my wife used to say that, by the way, but I actually really disagree with that. Because let us say, for example, you're raising capital for your company and you're meeting me saying, hey, I want to raise money from you. It's a pitch. You have a slide deck. We offer, that's great. That often works, right? But I don't have as much signal on you. I'm meeting you for the first time. I might do some references. I'm trying to understand you. But it's a very short period of time. Now, contrast this with, let's say I met you and you say, hey, I'm working on this thing. I'm not raising money right now. And then you meet me in two months and you're like, hey, by the way, I ship X, Y, and Z. And then two months, hey, I have all these customers now, I have all this traction, all right? Now I can almost mentally plot your trajectory, right? And I can be like, hey, this person, I don't totally understand that company, but they're constantly shipping stuff, right? Or they're constantly hearing all these new things they're building. And that is also really hard to fake the momentum, the trajectory, right? And then when you're having a funding conversation, like, well, you can sort of extrapolate, okay, this person achieved so much over a short period of time, I can just, I'm kind of drawing a line here, extend that line upwards, up and to the right, based on the trajectory so far, because you're betting on that. That's what you're betting on. So I think that's another pattern that I look for. Okay, so first one, for a person who thinks they're going to have a phone melting interview, would you recommend they get a second phone to actually be able to talk to guests? And do you have a second phone now? Wow, okay. I did not think about this. <laughs> I do have a second phone, but the reason I have a second phone is I always believe that as a technologist, say you need to try out every single uh, you have both, platform right? or yeah. product. Yep, iOS and Android. Yep, I have both iOS and Android, which come with a good phrase for people who kind of carry both. But I carry both. I switch them all the time. I mean, if you work in the mm. world of technology, you need to try out every single project or company or product which has billions of people using it. It doesn't really matter which part of the world they're in. Doesn't really matter what you prefer. You need to understand why is this thing working. So. I have an Android phone. I have zillions of gadgets on the house. And it has forever, right? Not just now. I have all sorts of tablets and PCs and laptops. And I'm always buying things. So I have everything. But yes, I do have multiple phones. I love it. Yeah, I try to switch every year, but that makes perfect sense. Okay, next one. So you know a lot of famous people. What's your favorite story about making a new famous friend? You don't have to name who they are. Just like your favorite story. That seems somewhat, I don't know, self-serving to say I know famous people. You didn't say it. I said it. <laughs> I think I go back to the idea of writing online as a superpower. One of the people I know work for, but can I honestly been just a dear friend mentor for a long time is Mark Andreessen. And I don't think I told the, told the story before that the way I met Mark Andreessen is because Mark cold emailed me because of something I wrote online. About 10 years ago, I wrote this 
just this weird blog post reacting to something he had said in an interview. And Mark reads everything. He follows everyone. And I just wake up and I get this email from Mark saying, like, hey, I kind of like your blog post. And I was like, oh my gosh, right? And I'm a little more used to him now, obviously. But at the time, it was like, I was like, well, this is very cool. And over the years, I would send him interesting blog posts I wrote or things I saw and built up a relationship that way. And about three, four years in, I get an email saying, hey, we should grab break for some time. Right? And that led to lots of things and eventually, obviously, a deep relationship with the firm. So I go back to just writing online. You'd be amazed at how many famous people have reached out to me because of something which was not thoughtful, not very articulate, but they're like, hey, I read your thing. Oh, you're the person who wrote that thing, right? Or you're the person with memos collection on your website, or you're the person who wrote the tweet, and I know of you. So writing online is a real superpower. So I'll keep that story. There's some other stories, but maybe I won't share that online. No, definitely. I love that because I actually loved how simple your website is and how the link at the bottom just directly goes to email. Like you repeat multiple times, please just reach out. And then at the end, it's literally like, here's a link and a way to reach out. So that makes perfect sense. Thank you. But a lot of people like my website design, which I, I'm always grateful for. Because also because the reason the website is so simple is because I'm lazy, right? And I'm like, all right, what do I do to basically have the most minimal amount of HTML and CSS possible? So I just let the browser do its thing. And I also kind of really like its retro look and feel, but I'm just very lazy. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. What have you found is the most effective type of Web3 event type to meet people at? Have you found any that kind of have higher return for you? Good question. To be honest, my wife and I just had a baby a few months ago. Actually, we had a baby the night before Ben and Chris called me to join the team, which is kind of a crazy story itself. And because of that, it's been really hard to go to events. It might just be, I think, as people get older. Back in when I was in my 20s, I used to be at like every mixer event conference. It's a lot harder, right? Every night away from the house is, I have to like think about where really need to go. So I may not be the best person to talk about it. But I think one of the things I really appreciate about crypto is how globally distributed it is. I talk to founders every day from Seoul, from Dubai, from Berlin, obviously lots of places from the US. And I do think these conferences and crypto do act as a melting pot for people to meet each other. But honestly, I have not gone to many. I went to NFT in NYC last year. I might go this year, but I haven't been to many. Like if you really think about it, like a lot of the amazing things on crypto happen on Twitter and online. So I sound like a broken record, but just write amazing stuff, build amazing stuff and people seek you out, right? Think about how many founders in crypto are pseudonymous, right? They're not attending parties and saying, I'm actually XYZ. Right? It is writing stuff and building cool stuff. And I think that's a lot more valuable than events. But I would love to go to more events, but since it's like for any parents who are listening, it's really challenging and I might have to figure out how that goes. Yeah. And I wouldn't think it's repetitive. I think it's just, it's a great way to give different examples of that kind of same message. So no, appreciate that. And then final question. So what's your go-to deal closing restaurant in San Francisco or your just favorite restaurant right now, whichever you prefer? Fun fact, most of my company investments slash deals have happened online not in person. So pretty much, I actually don't have a deep close restaurant because everything which has happened has been over Zoom because so much of the founders I've worked with have been remote. But in person, I love Cotonia here. There's a kind of a coffee shop near my house, which I don't want to really docks, which I'd like to take people to. I don't like fancy places. I want somewhat hole-in-the-wall style places because it just feels more me and more just what I prefer. But most of my investments have just happened over Zoom, happened online or happen on a walk somewhere. So I actually don't have an actual restaurant, mostly coffee shops, I think. Yeah, the world really has changed after COVID. And especially with Web3, no one's in the same place anymore. And so everything is remote. The world is changing. And actually, since everyone is in different places, there's not as much FOMO because you can actually interact with everyone online. That is true. It's kind of a great leveler, right? Often when I'm talking to founder, I have no idea which part of the world that founder is unless they ask. You know, I have really have no idea where they are. They could be in any country. And we often work with founders from other countries too, which is really powerful and different. All right. I really appreciate your generosity. I think everyone here had such a good time and learned so much. Thank you so much, Sharam, for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Like I said, I love what you folks do. I love the conversations you have. And thank you so much for having me. It was such a blast and a privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sharam. You can find Sri Ram on Twitter at S-R-I-R-A-M-K. His website is S-R-I-R-A-M-K.com and watch the Good Time Show weekly live on YouTube. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, W-L-D.S-H-O-W. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you. 